Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another exciting episode of JavaScript Jabber. I am Steve Edwards, the host with the face for radio and the voice for being a mind, but I'm still the host today. I snatched it away from AJ. Speaking of AJ, he is my co-panelist today here on the panel. That is from the Department of Redundancy Department. How are you doing, AJ? Uh, yo, yo, yo. I'm coming at you live from air conditioning. From air conditioning. That's, yes. that's a nice place to be, especially on a hot day. Yes. 72 degrees. That's what they're telling. That's what they're it was telling. Six, it was 68 before I turned on the air conditioning. I and turned it went on up the air to 72? So I, I don't know. That's a bad sign. I think you would call that reverse air conditioning, wouldn't you? Well, some would call it heating, but I right. think that it's just that the air conditioner is not going to keep up with the ambient heat. That's why I started it when it was at 68, because I thought, well, might as well get it flowing because. It's going to be a hot one. <laughs> All right. Before we get to our very special guest, I'd like to also welcome in the studio audience. Uh, yes. Thank you, audience, for being here. For those that are interested, um, uh, tickets go on sale online and you can get them and join us in person. Uh, we don't know where in person is, uh, but it's still there, as you can tell by the crowd. So with all that, let's get to our guest. Our guest today is Mr. Elliot Johnson. How are you doing, Elliot? Great. How are you? Good. Good to have you. So before we get into our topic of progressive enhancement, why don't you give us a quick uh, background on who you are, why you're famous, uh, and so on and so forth. And how yeah. many gray hairs you have? You know, any? maybe zero. I haven't, I haven't found any yet. I'm still a baby. I haven't really gotten to the the famous part yet. Uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe ever. Uh, well, after this, I've heard stories about after coming on our podcast, people just inundated with requests and even autographs and, and stuff. So never. Wow. Know. Well, I don't know if I'm ready, but I guess I'll I'll do my best. All right. Uh, so yeah. So I currently work as a growth engineer at Bursell. Um So I work on basically any front-end stuff that we have that faces users, and then also some back-end stuff that nobody ever hears about. Um, and my my way into Bursell and kind of the whole front-end world was spelled. Um, I started out my career as a business intelligence analyst and then moved into enterprise data modeling and kind of hated it the whole time and uh, needed to make a somewhat custom data site at some point. And uh, I had, I had you know, just for fun, learned about a bunch of different JavaScript frameworks. So I played around in React and Angular and some other stuff and uh, stumbled upon Svelte and just absolutely loved it and uh, discovered a bug in SvelteKit one day and went and fixed it. And one thing led to another and I ended up a, a maintainer of SvelteKit. And that kind of was my, my foot into the front end, uh, full stack door. And uh, yeah, ended up here at Vercel making cool cloud technologies. So sort of the Jerry Seinfeld thing. I fixed a bug and yada yada yada. I'm a I'm a maintainer now. Yeah, pretty much. One right. thing led to another. <laughs> so did, when you joined it, was it called SvelteKit or was it still Sapper? Um, so they are actually still separate things. They uh, are? Sapper oh. just kind of uh, so ba basically Sapper was kind of the first attempt, and uh, I mean it works. There are still sites running in production on Sapper, but uh, there were a lot of learning opportunities there, and it ended up kind of being one of those you know we could try to fix the mistakes that we made, or we could make another attempt using some of the lessons that Next.js and Nuxt and the other frameworks have learned, and that we've learned, and kind of start fresh and make something new. And so we had a very long beta phase. Um, I think we reached like almost 600 beta versions before we uh, we hit 1.0 on SvelteKit. But um, yeah, Sapper is still out there and available. Just wouldn't recommend using it. Uh, <laughs> SvelteKit is now past, past 1.0 and uh, has been for, I don't know, maybe half a year now. So by way of explanation, uh, for those who might not be familiar with it, uh, the best way to describe SvelteKit is as Next is to React and Nuxt is to Vue. SvelteKit is to Svelte. It's sort of the meta framework for server-side rendering and so on, correct? Yep, exactly. 
Okay. So why don't you give people a description of Svelte and I guess what it is and how it's different than some of the other uh, frameworks. I mean, a lot of people have heard of Richard Harris and, and uh, his history and how he developed it, but maybe there's some who don't know that. Yeah. So SvelteKit is, at its simplest, just another one of those uh, component frameworks for front-end development, right? There's there's a bunch of different flavors of them. Um, we got you know React and Angular and Vue and you know all the all the all the other ones, and uh, they're all really just abstractions over how do we make reusable UI components that handle state for the web. Um, and I, if I had to distill it, what I would say is different about Svelte is just that. Um, Somehow, some way, Rich has managed to create a developer experience that I have not found an equal to among the other frameworks. It is just simpler and easier to use uh, for for my brain, at least. Uh, and what makes it different internally is that it is it's rather than being a a, a runtime like Svelte. Uh, not that it does not have any runtime, but Svelte ships its entire runtime for like DOM diffing and. Uh, you know, all that stuff. Svelte is a comp compiler. So at build time, basically what we are doing is we're taking as much of the runtime logic that React and other runtime frameworks require and moving that into the build step and basically building the imperative code that is necessary to manage your state uh, at that build time so that we don't have to ship a uh, runtime when you actually visit a website. Um, and the effect of that is essentially that your base bundle size is just much, much smaller because there is no big runtime to ship the first time you visit a page. Um, yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's pretty much what Spelt is. So, you know, I've played around with it a little bit, haven't really done it too much. The two things that always stand out to me that I think of when dealing with Spelt is one, that it's basically plain JavaScript, right? It's, it's, there's not a lot of Vueisms or you know Reactisms or something like that, and then the second thing is that everything gets compiled. It has to be compiled into plain JavaScript because there's no runtime distributed with it, right? So that's the whole benefit. Uh, it's smaller, it's it's cleaner, no runtime. So that's what's what uh, makes it so performant. Yeah, and I would say like from the just the aesthetics of it, like when you're looking at it, if you if you look at something like React, right? Um, React is kind of, in one way, a superset of JavaScript, um, where you are working in JavaScript, all of your components are functions. You may be using JSX, which is like a new syntax that kind of brings HTML into JavaScript, but it's that's what it does, right? It brings HTML into JavaScript. Um, Spelt kind of looks at it the other way. Um, Spelt, the templating language, is a superset of HTML. Um, so rather than looking at it from the let's bring HTML into JavaScript, realm we kind of looked at it from the let's make it as much like html as possible um and use as much as possible just native javascript syntax what so with jsx it, it's kind of like they they didn't have javascript templates yet and so they made their own template language uh and if they could do it again i'm sure they would just use templates rather than having their own their own thing uh with html there's been lots and lots and lots of template languages that are not incompatible with HTML. They are, well, HTML doesn't really have a standard so much. So, I mean, you just type text in a file <laughs> that counts as HTML. But in terms of, you know, the brackets going where they should go, things looking like you expect it to look like, maybe adding a question mark or a percent sign or something, but they, they, they pretty much can be parsed by something that can do HTML parsing. So what with with Svelte, is it something where when I just open up my tooling, it's going to be able to format it and indent it just like HTML? Or do I have to have something that's specific to Svelte? Or what's what's the syntax that makes it different? So there are, there are only a few things that are not like native HTML syntax in Svelte. Um, so like a Svelte component, when you're looking at it, uh, it's normally split into roughly three parts. Um, and most people sort them thusly. Uh, you have a script tag at the top, which is just an HTML script tag, um, which has your JavaScript in it. Uh, 
below that, you have whatever markup is associated with your component, which is your kind of HTML stuff. And underneath your markup, you'd have a style tag uh, where you can write CSS. And that CSS is automatically scoped to the component that you're working in. So there's no like weird, crazy class names that you're having to write to keep them unique throughout your app. You know, if you need to write a very simple class name in a very simple component, you do that, it stays scoped there. Um, inside the HTML portion, there are a few additions, which is the superset part uh, that Svelte has made. All of them are really just simple um, templating, uh, you know, control flow type things. Like we have, we have in template um, control flow with if, if and else. Um, we have an await and uh, we have an, we have an await block, which I believe also comes with catch and then. So basically you can you can take a promise while the promise is resolving, have some loading state. When the promise has resolved, show the result of the promise um, or catch errors thrown by the promise in a different block. But all of those share the same syntax. It's very similar to uh, like mustache syntax that we use to do um, those blocks. All that being said, if you're in like a markdown processor and you're trying to share code with somebody, if it doesn't support an actual like spelt markup, you can normally say, you know, triple backtick HTML, and it will highlight your code exactly as you want it to. Um, because it is so close to regular HTML that it just about always looks right. So that structure is just like a view single file component, you know, script HTML. Uh, Pretty size. similar, yeah, yeah. Not that I do view every day or anything, but <laughs> so you know. <laughs> okay. So that's spelt. That's spelt kit and everything you ever wanted to know. Well, maybe not ever wanted to know. So let's move on to progressive enhancement and start out with uh, uh, a definition. And for the politics junkies, we're not talking progressive versus conservatives, I'm pretty sure. So <laughs> what, uh, what is progressive enhancement? Yeah, so to caveat right up front, uh, some of the stuff that I'm going to include in progressive enhancement here actually goes by some other names, uh, but I kind of like to lump it all in because it's all under the same philosophy. Uh, really, progressive enhancement is um, saying we have a lot of diverse users. Um, not all of them have our wonderful 15-inch MacBook Pros with M1s in them, right? Uh, some of them are on very cheap cell phones or very old computers with very low processing power. Some of them haven't updated their web browsers in a very long time. Um, and what we want to do when we build websites is build websites that present a functional, if maybe not as beautiful, experience to as many users as possible. And if those users can make use of uh, higher powered, you know, GPU accelerated features on the web, uh, we want them to be able to have that beautiful experience that we love to build. Uh, so basically, at the core of it, it is build a functional experience for everyone, build a beautiful experience for everybody that can make use of it. Because uh, why would you exclude users from your site uh, just because they don't have a nice enough device to, to view it? Uh, that's kind of the core of the philosophy. Okay. So in other words, it's only give people the things that they have the resources to use. Exactly. Find, give them a way to use your site, regardless of how they're using it. Okay. So, what are the if you're progress if you have a progressively enhanced website or application, what are the tiers? Is there is there like a, a general sort of pattern? Okay, give them straight HTML, and then if they got JavaScript, we'll give them JavaScript, and then if they can handle this, we'll this. Or does that kind of vary depending on the situation? Yeah. So, um, I think that. A lot of times when people talk about progressive enhancement, they think that uh, you're talking about shipping no JavaScript, which um, some frameworks have made it like their explicit goal to ship no JavaScript. Um, and I don't think that that's where we should land with this conversation, right? Like people people do exist who have JavaScript turned off or who, you know, for some reason, you know, bad network connection didn't download the whole JavaScript bundle, you know, any number of things don't have JavaScript working. Uh, and we need to consider them. So, I mean, I guess I would say that's probably the first tier is like, can we implement this feature in such a way that it will work if JavaScript does not work at all? And then when JavaScript comes in, make it work better. Um, but then, you know, the, the rest of it is, is any number of uh, philosophies. You know, can we make use of older um, 
you know, JavaScript APIs or compile, well, can we make use of older JavaScript APIs to increase compatibility without affecting our developer experience? Um, you know, you can transpile back to whatever ancient browser version you want to, but that will like inflate your bundle. So you got to be conscious about how you're doing all of this. Um, you know, anything that we can do to decrease the size of our site, right, when we're shipping it, uh, helps with those people that are on a train and have an intermittent network connection or are out in the middle of nowhere and are getting, you know, a megabyte per second. Uh, so, yeah, I would say probably the way that I would approach it is to start with um, how do I make this work without JavaScript? Um, if I start from there, then I'm going to hit the largest audience probably that I can hit. And then when you run into the walls of like, okay, no way to make this work without JavaScript, you think, okay, how can I make this work with the least amount of bundle size and the most efficient, you know, code that I can write, um, you know, maybe not adding dependencies to my module graph. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, in terms of, you know, people that would have JavaScript turned off. I can remember back, you know, late 90s, early 2000s, where that was a viable thing. People would have it turned off. They didn't want it for, you know, performance reasons, maybe security concerns, whatever the case may be. And I can remember there was a check you could always do in your HTML page and you display a warning. Sorry, we need JavaScript to run this site. Better turn it on or your hose. Well, not maybe those words. But um, anymore, I mean, I think it's by default. Um, that people are going to have it turned on. It's more the, the the very rare exception than the rule that JavaScript would would be disabled. Well, I, I agree, but um, I also think that like there's a good quote by I think it's Jake Archibald um, of Google fame. Uh, he says something like, uh, "Every user is a no JavaScript developer or uh, user until the JavaScript bundle has finished downloading." Uh, and they <laughs> I like that actually. There, yeah, right. So, so it doesn't it doesn't matter if they have it disabled. Which I, I gotta tell you, there's a member of the Svelte Core team who does not uh, allow JavaScript on most sites. Uh, so, like, there are still those weirdos out there. Uh, so but he's working a, on a JavaScript framework, but doesn't allow JavaScript on most. Well, sites. see, that's where SSR comes in, right? Okay. Um, so, there's lots of cool stuff that you can do with SSR where JavaScript is always enabled, uh, but that you could not do in the browser, but Again, the point is not to ship no JavaScript. It is to make it work for as many people as possible. And I would say, like, when I'm on bad network connections, the most common failure mode for me is I got the HTML and CSS and something got screwed up with the JavaScript, right? Like, this button is no longer working because I missed something as I, like, went out of my network connection. I live in Denver, so I'm, like, up in the mountains all the time. Um, and there are lots of times where I can get a website and then not have it become fully interactive. Uh, just because my my connection is spotty, um, but we don't have to sacrifice our user experience for that. Um, I think one of the one of the coolest things that we have done in the past short amount of time is all of these meta frameworks kind of leaning on uh, what can we do with this hybrid server side rendering hydrated client uh, behavior. Um, one thing that SvelteKit has done a really interesting job of is making it so that your progressively enhanced code is as similar to your non-progressively enhanced code as possible. Uh, it's probably not the best way to say that. But basically trying to make it so that when you're thinking about how do I write code for many, many users, the delta between that and what is the best experience I can write is as small as possible. Um, one of the, the most common use cases that I can think of is uh, form submissions, right? Um, native HTML form submissions, if you have a network connection, just work on pretty much everything, right? Um, they've been a part of the standard forever. Uh, but they don't give a great user experience. So if you've got like an HTML form submission that fires off a post request and that post request takes even a second or two, you if you're not using interactivity features like JavaScript, you don't get any feedback that that form is submitting, right? Until it, it finishes submitting and loads your confirmation screen or whatever. Um, 
But the really nice thing about HTML forms is that you can attach uh, event handlers to them, uh, right? So typically, if we were on like you know a purely client rendered application and we were creating a form, um, we can create that form and we can attach an on submit handler to it so that we can you know trigger our loading state and perhaps intercept that submission request and handle it through JavaScript in such a way that we can you know show them a modal or redirect them to the page that they're supposed to be on afterwards. Um, and what's really nice about that is uh, if you are trying to attach an event handler to a form and for some reason your network disconnects before you can download all your JavaScript, they have JavaScript turned off, any number of failure modes, uh, you can't attach an event handler to that form uh, when JavaScript is not working. Uh, so if JavaScript's not working, that form is going to fall back to native form behavior, which is whatever the form action defined on it is, it's going to make a post request to that URL. I, I think this is good. I, right. I think that we want, let me say it this way. It would be nice if, if something could work by default, it does work by default. Yep. But on the other hand, you know, the weirdo that has the JavaScript turned off, I'm sorry, but he's just not buying my product, right? Sure. He's like, I'm not making money off of that person. He's not contributing value to what I'm creating. So if he just wants to look at blogs and that's what he's using the internet for, good for him, right? But I'm not, as a business owner, I know that I'm not going to make money off of him. So I don't want to spend 10 times as much effort trying to figure out all this nuance to appeal to him when he's not, he's not going to gain me any business. So, it, it, I mean, and I could be, I, argue with me here. Am I making the wrong assumption? Is, is it that we're actually only using one-tenth the effort? Or is this, uh, you know, what, what, yeah, what does so this look like? I, I guess um, one thing that a lot of people miss here is that, um, like, we tend to think of this from a very, like, I have a $1,000 smartphone point of view. Um, this also just applies to very computationally limited people as well, right? Like, but are those people um, my customers? I don't know. It depends on what your business is. If you're if you're looking to go international further than just the U.S. and the European Union, very possibly. Uh, but the other point that you're making on effort, um, again, is the whole point of the framework, right? Um, if the framework can make writing progressively enhanced apps the smallest delta possible from writing whatever the heck I want to write with whatever experience I want to have. That, that's what we're trying to do, right? Is, is take the amount of effort required to write what I want and also to reach as many customers as possible and, and make that delta just minuscule. Um, I'm 100% in on that, by the way. I'm a, I, yeah. I do a little bit devil's advocate most of the time. It's oh, my definitely. Own opinion, but ah, on, the, ah, on yes. this one... A little um, bit. <laughs> but so I'm, I'm with you. Yeah. So, so the, and the reason that I bring that up specifically is um, like in the case of Spelt Kit, where we have SSR built in um, and we can use that on any number of platforms. Um, the, the difference between writing a progressively enhanced form and writing a uh, native HTML form and writing a, an all JavaScript form. Uh, is like a line of code. Um, it is it is easier for me to write a progressively enhanced form that when people have good network and good processing, uh, looks great and has loading states and does all that. Um, the difference between that and making sure that it works for everybody is nothing. Um, I have to write the code for um, my interactivity anyway. And by writing that code, I also write progressively enhanced code. Um, now, with forms, though, typically, unless it's a comment field, you have a sense of nestedness, right? So I'm gonna, I'm gonna have some parent object that's gonna have some children objects, which may have some children objects. So typically, that's best represented in JSON, not. URL encoded. And in fact, yep. I don't think that we have a standard for how to URL encode that. 
as of yet, which would be great if we did. But how do you work yeah. around that? Or is that not a problem? Uh, so post requests are not URL encoded unless you purpose like a right. native a native post request with a form submits the data as form data. Mm-hmm. That's URL um, encoded. That's www.url. Well, we're saying the same. It's, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, okay. Yes. So let me, let me back up. Um, when you said URL encoded, I'm thinking um, query string. That um, is, well, it is. It's the same. Yeah. It's mime type. Yes. Mime type www.url encoded x x form or I, I forget what the mime type is. Yeah. But, yeah, so, but, but there, there is a, there is a um, very useful JavaScript wrapper around the form data object, right? So um, essentially when you make a post request, one, when you're on the server um, and you're receiving that request, you get your form data object back, which is not just some strange uh, like magic string that you're having to parse it's parsed you get you know you can call form data get and all of your other methods um but yes but it's also... not it doesn't have nested objects so you can have yeah okay okay your so face the... says that you know something yeah, yeah. i don't know so there are also some amazing uh and super easy to set up wrapper libraries that will just basically transparently parse your form data into whatever kind of object it's supposed to be um super forms is one that has uh come out relatively recently, actually is kind of the result of a hackathon that we had earlier this year, that has um, just absolutely blown me away. Um, libraries like that, we've got, um, what's the other one? There's a there's a TypeScript transport library that works just fantastically for this as well. But basically, um, basically what, what all of them do is they sit between your form data and your code and do whatever transformations are necessary on your form data to turn it into whatever you're expecting it to be. Um, And so the benefit of that is, right, um, you get to work with JSON or whatever um, object, like JavaScript object structure you're wanting to work with for your data. Um, But it still works because it's running, it's all running on the server, right? Um, It still works for for everyone. Right. So, so you're using the web fundamentals under the hood, uh, but not having to interact with them directly. Okay. So this could still work in the no JavaScript environment. The thing that gets pre-rendered has the form fields rendered according to whatever format, and then it gets parsed on the other end. So we don't have a standard for it per se, but you can pick, you can pick a library that will do it in the way that it understands. Yeah, I would say until you get to somewhere on the upper end of like medium complexity, you probably can do it with no help. Um, like I have had very good luck with um, just using Spellkit. But when you get to those complicated examples where you're really trying to build enterprise grade apps, there are also libraries that give you that extra bit that you need to make it even better. Um, and and I guess to kind of go back just a little bit to the the SSR part, uh, one of the really nice things about Spellkit and and other meta frameworks too, uh, is that typically what they do is is on first render um, when you get your page, you get your page and it's server side rendered, so you're getting all of the content as it was intended to be rendered on the server. And then what they will do is um, hydrate a client side router. Um, so. When you are using it and you have good processing power, you're the ideal user. You get the the speedy, quick navigations from you know that client side router taking you places and rendering on your browser um, as you would expect. But the nice thing is, if something breaks, if you do miss that JavaScript bundle or your your computer is too slow to hydrate the router before you try to go somewhere else, um, because the because the router has not mounted. Uh, you get a normal full page navigation to your next page, which is also server side rendered. So there's this very graceful failure state um, for pretty much everything on these these meta frameworks. Um, where if your client side router is not working, that's great because the server side one will. So going back to forms, you know, which is the example you brought up, I remember, <clears throat> you know, there's a lot of uh, JavaScript libraries out there for handling forms, whether it's validation uh you know formatting your data for you so it looks nice and pretty for the user that kind of stuff but i remember uh 
been a while. And I think it was Austin Gill I was having a conversation with. Uh, he works for Akamai, a friend of mine. He's been on here a few times. And it was about what you can do with forms without JavaScript. And it's you pretty know, incredible. It is. It really is. I've been working on an application. Um, uh, it's a uses Inertia JS and Vue and Laravel, and so it's you know a bunch of Vue on the front end. But in it's it's pretty data heavy application. And in working with my forms, there's a lot of stuff that I could do in with just native forms, you know, without having to bring in a, a library that gives me a custom date picker and and all this stuff. That makes it. It was like so easy and so much less of a headache um, to just work with the forms. You know, there's an easy enough date picker. It may not be fancy enough for some people, but for me, it worked. You know, some you know requirements, validation type stuff that you can do. So, to me, that would be a boon, to progressive enhancement at least, because you don't need the JavaScript in the first place. So there's nothing to enhance. Granted, yep. there's if you want to get really fancy, there is some stuff you can do, and if from a validation standpoint, I mean, it's pretty well known that, you know, JavaScript validation can be, you know, bamboozled or overridden if you got your, you really want your validation on your server side anyway, just to, to catch stuff like that. But uh, my point being that there's a lot you can do without JavaScript in the first place. Yeah, and actually, one of the really nice things about the way that uh, SpoutKit does handle its progressive enhancement for forms is that um, because it makes use of the client side router. Um, when the client-side router is available, uh, it really feels like you are doing client-side validation and doing all of this, uh, you know, super simple, you know, stuff that we're used to doing in React. Uh, but you can run that on the server so that it works in both cases, right? Um, whether the the user has functioning JavaScript or not. Um, and there are also really like really simple progressive enhancement cases within forms. Uh, for example, like you were you were talking about a date picker, right? Um, if you wanted to progressively enhance a date field, right, you can server side render a normal date picker in there, um, and then you can run a JavaScript check on the client to see is everything working, and replace it with a better date picker if you want to, right? Uh, rather than just trying to ship a date picker that may or may not work. Uh, you can ship one that you know works and then replace it with one that's better if if it can handle that. When we talk about progressive enhancement, I'm always the details guy and how does stuff work? So when you're saying, okay, uh, here's my main HTML site now. Okay, if they've got it, I'm going to throw in this JavaScript. Where and how do you do those checks? It's always the thing I wondered, are you like looking at the browser and there's a setting in their API that says, okay, he's got JavaScript enabled, go ahead and throw in a bunch of JavaScript? Or what is the mechanics of adding those different tiers on based on the capabilities of the, the browser or the user? So um, this is where people that are really like hardcore progressive enhancement people get angry at me for saying that this is progressive enhancement because they're terms <laughs> people, you know. Uh, but there, there are a number of ways. Well, one is like, if we're talking about specific features most not all but most like newer browser features that you might want to use but that might not be widely supported yet you can check for somehow right like you can you can check for like window.navigator if you want to use window like if if it's defined then it's working and awesome you can use it and if it's not you got to find something else to do um so some of this stuff you can actually explicitly check for um others we rely on graceful fallback um, and actually the term for that is like graceful degradation right right uh, which which i would consider part of progressive enhancement uh and in cases like that right um if you have set up your your forms to work in a native manner right so if i ship this and it's just html it will submit to the right place on my server run the right code return the right response it's going to work if you've done that and then you try to attach a, an event handler to that form. If JavaScript is working and the person was able to download your full bundle and everything is you know, bootstrapped correctly, um, that event handler is going to get attached and you can like event.prevent default in there to you know, handle whatever client side stuff you want to with your form. Um, and if JavaScript doesn't work, then that handler never got attached and your form is going to behave 
natively, right? Um, and I think that most, like most of the code that I write, um, relies on kind of just the fact that if I write a check that requires JavaScript to run, then that check is going to fail if JavaScript does not run, right? Uh, sort of a catch-22, huh? <laughs> How do I check for JavaScript without having JavaScript to check for JavaScript? Right, exactly. So, no so typically, tech. yeah, yeah. So, so right. typically, typically you'll write something that, that SSRs to a usable state um, and then enhances itself with JavaScript if it can. Right. So write it so that it works when it's SSR'd and write it so that it's better when it hydrates. So you can SSR with JavaScript already included, right? Like a script tag or, or how does that work? Um, well, essentially, uh, one of the nice things about Svelte is that it's kind of an SSR first framework in that basically, unless you are using browser primitives, um, everything that you write in a Svelte component can run both on the server and on the client. Uh, so if you think about it, um, kind of, um, I'm looking for a word here. Uh, if you think about it progressively, I guess, if you think about the order in which everything runs, um, if you are SSRing your content, your component is going to run on the server. It's going to produce HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. And it's going to ship that to the client. Um, your HTML and CSS output is going to be the result of that server render, right? Um, and you may ship JavaScript to the client that tries to make updates to that HTML and CSS. Um, but even if that JavaScript doesn't work, you're still going to get that HTML and CSS that was rendered on the client. Um, so essentially, you can do whatever the heck you want to on the server, ship the result of that, and then try to enhance it with whatever client-side behavior you want um, with that JavaScript that gets shipped. So you said you have a component that runs both on the client and on the server. Is that... Okay, so my mind's just melting down as I'm trying to figure this out. So do you have, from a physical file, your component file, you know, a single file component, whatever, do you just have one copy and somehow it's distributed to both the server and the client, or, or how does that work? Yep. Um, so there is, we, we have a number of um, hooks you can use in Spelt components. So you're, when, when you're rendering a Spelt component, you have your script tag. Um, your script tag is going to be run from top to bottom, just like a normal JavaScript module is. So when you run your script tag on the server, it's going to start at the top. It's going to run all your code and like whatever whatever values from your code are referenced in your markup uh, are going to be rendered into that markup. So like in the simplest version, if you have a script tag that says like const hello equals world, and then you have an h1 in your markup that says that has you know hello the variable referenced in it. When you SSR that the output HTML is going to be uh, H1 world, right? And that's what you're going to get on the client. Um, so that's cool and all. Uh, but we also have, um, there are hooks on mount, on destroy, you know, lifecycle hooks. Um, and if I write an on mount hook in my component, when it is run on the server, that on mount hook is not going to be run. Um, because there's no mount on the server. You're not actually mounting anything to the DOM. You're just generating a string that's going to be output as HTML and shipped to the, the browser. Um, when it gets to the browser, it's then going to hydrate that component. And when it's mounted, it will run that on mount code. Um, so that's kind of at base how it works. Um, but there's also the fact that um, like the Spelt compiler can output uh, like when we're when we're running for uh, Spellkit, it can output a version of your based based on the same Spell file. It can output both a client and a server version of that component. So if it needs to be rendered on the server, it runs and renders a string which is shipped to the client. If it needs to be rendered on the client, then it has all the code that it needs to you know mount everything to the DOM and do all the updates and hydration and stuff that it needs to do. Um, 
But the point is, all of that is taken care of by the compiler. Um, you can write the same component for the server and the client and not have to worry about how exactly that works on the back end. So within your component, you don't have to run a check for is this client or is this server? I don't know, for instance, in the, the older uh, Nux 2 at least, um, for instance, for view in your async data, you would have a check, okay, there's a context value that says this is running on the server, this is the client. So that's not something you need to do with, at least with Svelte Kit? So that exists. I very rarely have to use it. So we do have like a check that you can import to say like if browser or if not browser, run this code. Uh, but most of the time I find myself not having to use it because if I need something to run on the browser when it's mounted, I'm going to put it in unmount, uh, hmm. which like implicitly is a check for is browser because unmount doesn't run during the SSR cycle because again, there's no mount. Um, and there's also like on destroy, which very rarely, if ever, needs to get used. Um, mm. But but yeah, if if you if you need to access, I think the 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 few times where I do have to use the like is browser or is not browser checks, or if I need to access, um, you know, browser primitives, right? If if there is some sort of primitive like window dot something that is not available on the server, um, and it doesn't make sense to run that on mount. Then, then I may have to check to see if if I'm on the browser of a server. Okay. So we've established, I think, the mechanics and the why and sort of the how of progressive enhancement. Is there anything else we're missing in terms of what's involved with progressive enhancement? Um, I think that the fundamental like tick point for me, where it kind of crossed over um, into understanding, was like. It's really easy to start your web development journey in a front-end framework, uh, right? Like, I think that my introduction to front-end development was React, mm -hmm. uh, Mine was which was really cool, right? Yeah, so like, like a lot of people get introduced through these frameworks, and it's really cool because it gives you a low barrier to entry into web development, which is awesome. Uh, but at some point, you need to step back um, and learn how web fundamentals work. Like, how does HTML work? How does CSS work? Try to build a website with no JavaScript. I'm not saying to do that because I want you to go build websites with no JavaScript because JavaScript is freaking awesome. But uh, because that understanding of like, what are the different failure modes of websites and, you know, how do these three technologies, HTML, CSS, and JavaScript interact with each other? Understanding that and being able to understand, like, well, when when everything explodes, this is like where I'm going to be. That being able to look at things from that direction helped me a lot. Um, definitely backing out of the the framework game and, and figuring out how the web works, and then coming back into it gives you a fresh set of eyes. Yes, it's amazing how understanding the fundamentals of something actually helps you understand. <laughs> Yeah, what's being added on top of it, you know? Yeah, yeah. An area in which I am still lacking. But uh, now, are you familiar with a guy named Maximiliano Fertman? The name sounds familiar. He's a Brazilian guy. We've talked to him before about progressive enhancement. It's been a while. Uh, he was episode four fifteen of Fertman. Yes, was his name. Episode four fifteen of this. So this is about three and a half years ago. So yeah, PWA has been around. For a while i can you know i can remember going back to my early drupal days where um the term that you used uh earlier the graceful degradation i think was uh the term you used to you know add your jquery back when it was jquery before you know angular and before any of these frameworks came out it was right in such a way that it'll still work even if jquery can't load uh and jquery obviously and was always pages loaded okay now i'm going to throw in my javascript Right, uh, on I forget what the hook was the way we always check to see if if everything was loaded, but yeah, it's the the concept was certainly not new by any stretch of the imagination, um, and like you said, I think a lot of people fall into the trap of assuming that everybody's got the same you know killer latest iPhone or Android phone or or you know M1 or M2 chip in your MacBook or desk you know all the stuff that can easily handle JavaScript and you forget that there's a lot of people that don't have that, uh, that uh, those great connections and great hardware. 
May the technology gods have pity on their souls. Right. If you don't have an M1 or an M2, you're not living the good life. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know, man. After getting, I still have my own computer is is still in an Intel chip MacBook. And then I got a, uh, an M2 for my work laptop and M2's got its advantages, but more getting it working sometimes is painful. <laughs> that's all I can say. I look, I we we should talk offline about that. I've never had a problem that I can recall other than you have to install Rosetta by right clicking on terminal and checking Rosetta or get info and then Rosetta. Anyway, other than that, it's it's been smooth sailing. And the first week that the new M2s were out, there was an update that you had to get for sleep to work. Oh, okay. Yes, we will talk offline of the hours I've spent chasing that down. All right. So with that, we'll move on to picks. Picks are the part of the show where we get to talk about anything other than tech, or you can talk about tech if you really, really, really that much into it. Uh, let's start with AJ. You got any picks for us today? I'm... Uh... I'm checking to see here if I've got anything. Oh. Um, I've been listening to Starsight, which is the second book in the Skyward series. I actually just finished it last night, finished the the epilogue and the the last chapter that comes after the last chapter, that's new. I've never had an epilogue and then a chapter after the epilogue before, but Brandon Sanderson, Trailblazer. Uh, so that's, uh, it's, it's a really good, it, so far it's, it's a really good series. I've really enjoyed it. It's sci-fi fantasy, uh, girl out in space well post post-apocalyptic earth actually we don't know what happened to earth but they're living on a different earth and uh she's a fighter pilot goes through a bunch of uh i don't, I don't know how to give it a synopsis you'll have to listen to somebody else but but it's 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 been a good book and it's very kid-friendly i would say this one doesn't doesn't seem to have too much in there in terms of uh swearing or or awkward uh awkward moments that uh you'd have to to worry about it's 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 very enjoyable as an adult it's not juvenile i don't think but it's also very family friendly and but just brandon sanderson is that way in general i love the way that brandon sanderson does swearing i just love it because he makes up an alien language just kind of like if you ever watched the tv show firefly well in, in that case i think they actually swear in chinese in some cases so they act, i think they are actually are swear anyway but in their in their made up language, they have their own swear words that come from essentially their own religions and deities. So in in the Stormlight Archives, it's the storm is the is a swear word because the, the 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 gods of the storms essentially are you know they're they're deities and so they it's and then uh, I I don't know where it comes from in in Starsight, but Scud is their they've got a couple of other words, but Scud is their main swear word. So I, I appreciate the way that he handles that, where you can still see that people are being vulgar and expressing anger or contempt, but uh, does it in a way that is not so uh, that that can still be family friendly. Anyway, and when then, I hear Scud, I think uh, Scud missiles from the Gulf War, and that that may have something to do with it as to why that word was chosen. I don't know. That's not really explained. Uh, whereas in the other books. You can tell where the swear words come from because as the book progresses and more of the plot unfolds and you understand more about the world, you you recognize that one of their sacred symbols or one of their, you know, one of their things that people revere is X. And so then either X or a related word becomes the the, the curse word, much as it is in our our human earth languages. Uh, the other thing that I might pick. Oh, actually, I will. Owl City came out with a new album. I ordered it. Amazon shipped it, and it was cracked because something had obviously gouged through the Amazon packaging and through the CD packaging um, and cracked the CD. So I haven't listened to it yet, but I will soon. And and Owl City, I, I love I love Adam Young. He's he's one of my man crushes. He comes out with just excellent music. And 
that's it. That's 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 all I got for now. Wow, today is definitely a day to write in the calendar for short picks for AJ. And you know what? I've got another pick, which is a certain finger on my hand for Steve. <laughs> it's this one. Yes. <laughs> All right. I will go next and we'll save uh, the guests for last. Although not the best for last, because the best for last is always the dad jokes. But uh, first off is a blog post that happened to see on Hacker News by a guy named Jeff Geerling. Um, I recognize Jeff's name from Drupal World, and he's really big open source Linux and that he... Uh, created an environment called Drupal VM that you could use to uh, use containers and Ansible and uh, I forget what else um, to be able to just spin up and run a, a site. Uh, it's got a post that says he's done with Red Hat Enterprise Linux. And the gist of the post is that Red Hat and their use or rather uh, abuse of the license is really they've already killed CentOS, I guess. Really? And yeah, and they're oh. trying to um, to force others to buy licenses, use their distribution. Uh, and he talks about the thing that uh, distros that spun up in the absence of uh, of CentOS. I think it was Alma, and I forget what the other one is. Oh, Rocky Linux and Alma Linux. Anyway, uh, it's on his side. He's an interesting guy. I think he's from Missouri. A very prolific open source developer. Uh, just an interesting post, uh, especially as it relates to open source software and licenses. And now for, I'm sorry, go ahead. I, I think this is just indicative of the problem with open source. It, it seems that it's maybe the, the expectation, right? Because we all know that you have to get paid in order to produce something. You can't produce something for two decades for free. Mm -hmm. But open source is kind of a false promise of, oh, this is going to be free, but then eventually reality has to hit and they have to start offering paid products. And if the offering of paid products doesn't do it, then they have to require paid products. And then people feel like they were lied to. And I don't think that that was the intention, but that's the reality is that, you know, if you don't get paid, do you eat? Do you pay rent? Yeah, there was, a guy, there was a guy, I remember hearing about another podcast and I forget the library had, it was some... I want to say it started with the C. He was like, I maintain this library that's used by everybody <laughs> in the world and I get nothing for it. You know, I get like 65 bucks a year out of people donating or something like that. And he's like, and I can't remember the the outcome of it, but he's like, I got to, you know, I got to make some money if I'm going to put all this time in it, you know, for free for everybody else. Elliot, you were nodding. Do you remember what I'm talking about? I, I was thinking of Faker.js. I think something like that happened to that. Um, yeah, that was like the mocking library. Right. Um, I seem to remember something very similar to that happening with them. Yeah. There's yes, dozens I, of projects at this point. CoreJS, FakerJS. CoreJS. That's the yeah. one. That's the one I was thinking of. It's CoreJS. And that one, oh, that dude has got the worst story ever because he, I believe he's a born of Russian parents, went back to visit Russia. Now he's trapped there, can't leave. And oh, then, and then all of this, you know, propaganda means that nobody is in the US at least is legally allowed to donate to him or pay him for work because then you're a Russian sympathizer. Right. Right. Yeah, it's like Wimbledon banning Russian players and stuff like that. It's like those are these are not the, these are not our enemies. These are not the people that are out there killing others. And even the people that are actually pulling the trigger, they're not the ones that are the enemy. They're just the ones that are pulling the trigger, and we might have to pull the trigger back, depending on who we happens to be on the given day. Right. So anyway, before we get off on too much of a tangent, uh, it's an interesting post on jeffgearling.com. Uh, and then finally, the, uh, the dad jokes of the week. Um, so thinking back, you know, when I first passed my driving test to get my license when I was 16th. I actually got a nine out of a 10. I did pretty good. That last guy managed to get out of the way. <laughs> right. So, you know, I live in a neighborhood, sort of a you know, cookie cutter neighborhood where houses are somewhat close together. And uh, if I'm reading their lips correctly, my neighbors are arguing, arguing about some creepy guy next door. Although I'm pretty sure it's not me. Uh, and then finally, for those in the uh, 
dental profession. I never understood why a set of false teeth is called dentures. I mean, they really missed an opportunity to call them substitutes. Okay, that one took me a second. Actually, it's taken me more than a second, but I, I'll, I'll just be that guy, I guess. Substitute, substitutes, in case you missed it. Uh, All right. So with that, we'll move on to Elliot. Elliot, what do you got for us for picks? Uh, I just went and saw the the new Spider-Man in the <gasps> Spider-Verse movie for the second time, uh, like a couple of days ago. And like, if you haven't seen that movie, if you haven't seen the first one, well, you're just fine and you need to go. What you need to do is you need to sit down for the first one and then go to the second one immediately after. Okay, uh, I will do it. Just art. I mean, just pure art. One of one of the. I mean, it's it's up there. Like with if you've seen Arcane, um, like it's just up there with the best animation that's ever been produced. Incredible mm. art from beginning to end. Great voice acting. The story is great. Yeah, totally worth it. Go see it. Yeah, uh, they did the, the style on the first one. It just totally drew me in, and I mm-hmm. I love watching the behind the scenes stuff. And they talked about how they actually swapped out the frame rates. So the bad guys yep, are yep. on a what a 20 frames per second and the good guys are on a 30 frames per second. And so this yeah, 24 and 12. 20, yeah. Yeah. And it gives you this jarring effect where the bad guys are yep. more. Yeah. Oh. Yep. Yeah. So so if you're gonna go see it, I'll give you one thing to look out for. Uh there is a scene where they are sitting upside down and you're looking at a skyline of New York. Um and you know, if if you if you seen those movies before you know they do the 3d animation and they do the line work over top of it you know to make it look very comic booky there's a lot of stuff they do but they do the line work over top of the 3d work and if you look at that skyline of new york for one shot of it at a second and a half right in the middle there is just the corner of the (coughs) side and top of the twin towers in the middle of the skyline there's no tower just the line work for the corner really cool little easter egg they threw in there um wow. how do yeah. you notice that if you've only gone into the or if you've seen it in the theater or are you just watching it i've seen it twice i've seen it twice i went the first time to watch it and then i went the second time to just look at all the stuff in the background and see what i could see but you could you can see one frame you can no, no, no not a frame i mean like it's a shot like you see it and it's there for like a second and a half i mean it's oh. not like it's not like okay it's not like boom it's like you see it and then it pans away Okay. Yeah. Okay. I for a yeah, second. Yeah. No. 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 Not like that. I, I misunderstood <laughs> what you said. I thought. I thought you said that it was in there in a second and a half shot. It was in there for one frame. No. 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 Okay. <laughs> no. No. It was there for a second and a half or so. Yeah. Okay, but you'll. You'll. If if you get to that scene and you're watching for it, you'll see it because it's right in the middle of the screen. But I missed it the first time. Yeah. And then I guess uh, second one is if I can just show you right here. I really love these keyboards by Keyboard IO. Where are you? Come on, camera. There we go. These guys are so cool. This thing has saved me so much carpal tunnel. Um, it is a two-sided keyboard uh, with an ergo layout. And they just make the coolest stuff. Um, Interesting. That yeah. is truly a split keyboard. It is a split keyboard. And the the case is walnut, um, which has been great because I have sweaty hands and it doesn't make them sweat. Um and the company, yeah, the company is called Keyboard IO, and they make lots of really interesting, like micro layouts and ergo layouts and stuff like that. So, I, I yeah. want to get into that, but my my problem is then I would have to have a second one to carry with me everywhere, and it'd be very bulky. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I actually have no no trouble switching back and forth between this layout and like my normal QWERTY on my laptop. You're not committed um, enough. Yeah. Well. <laughs> Maybe I'm just, it's just because I'm young. I've still got that neuroplasticity, you know. And no Maybe. gray hairs. Yeah. <laughs> I can't, uh, yeah, I have a hard time. I have a hard time. But it, I, I'll pick one more thing. The M2 Mac Studio, by the way. I'll throw that in there. That's been great. Side tangent. Uh, never mind. My thought process went to 10 different things, and then I just blurted something else. Nor- <laughs> normal me. Normal me. Is there a difference between a tangent and a side tangent? Yes. Oh, okay. One is to the side of the tangent. So tangent, you can see where it connects. A side tangent, you can't see where it connects. You have to be in the other person's head. That's a scary place for you. Okay. (laughs) All right. I'm guessing I'm going to get the finger here real quick. So 
before we get too unfamily friendly, we're going to wrap up this episode for today. Uh, before we leave, I'd like to say once again, thank you to our studio audience. They've been sort of quiet during this, but I know they're there. I can feel them in spirit. Uh, thank you, Elliot, uh, for coming in and enlightening us on progressive enhancement. If people want to follow you and see what you're saying and doing and give you money, what is the best place to do that? <laughs> uh, well, I have a Twitter with 16 followers. It's at underscore gruntled. <laughs> so you could be like like 5% of my followers just by it's doing it. I'm yeah. getting in while it's you, you by yourself. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and if you want to do some further reading, I have, uh, or further watching, I've got a great video by our own Rich Harris in our chat here. So hopefully they'll include that somehow. This is just a picture of a cat. Sorry. I like to tweet once. You literally tweeted once. <laughs> <laughs> hey, all I'm saying is if you want to get in touch with me. What, did you just you turn 18 and now your parents like... <laughs> Like, why are you doing Twitter? What, what's going on? Uh, I, you know, I just prefer my people in person. Uh, that doesn't sound like an 18 year old. You must be 80. <laughs> Sorry, the disguise worked really well. Right. Uh, okay, so with that, we'll wrap this episode. Thank you to Elliot. Thank you to AJ. And thank you to me. You're welcome for coming. And we will talk at you next time on Javascript Jabber. Jabber.